everybody. Welcome to the program. Nice to have you here. It's a Wednesday, and it's also kind of a historic day. I'm going to tell you a couple things uh, that you may not have heard on, on the news today um, about something you may have heard on the news today, and that is that Jennifer Crumbly is going to go to prison for the crime that her son committed. That is a fact. Guilty four times over, right there. This is the moment where she did not expect to hear it, and nor did a lot of people, actually. Guilty for what your son did. He killed these four kids at his school in Michigan. But, lady, you're going to pay. Now, Ethan's paying, too, with, you know, life, no parole. But, mom, you're going to prison. Dad, we'll see. He's going to go on trial next month. We'll see if it's equal justice for mom and for dad. I have my own issues with how moms are always blamed for everything when the kid does something. But there's something else that I think you're going to be really interested in, and that is how, um, how a parent who lost a child at Columbine feels about this. Because if you can believe it, it is almost a quarter of a century since Columbine. And you're about to hear from a dad who does not want the same thing to avenge his son's death. Just be patient. You will hear. That is Daniel Moser. And, and his dad, Tom Moser, is my guest on the program tonight. And he feels very differently about the parents of the child killers at Daniel's school. It's super fascinating conversation. You'll have to stick around for this, okay? And then I have this picture I wanted to show you because I wanted to like do a little test to see if you recognized this woman. So let's pop up this picture. It's like it's courtesy of the California Department of Corrections. Well, that one isn't. <laughs> so there goes the there goes the guessing game. <laughs> There's the one. <laughs> what a way to start the show. Oops. Okay. So obviously this is the person I, I wanted you to guess who it was. Uh, it was that siren in the sexy leather business. And the reason I wanted to do this guessing game with you, not just because it's amazing to see before and after pictures, it's also what prison does to you. We always cover these stories, off you go to the slammer and good riddance and wash our hands of you. But there's something about witnessing justice taking its toll. And on many people, you can see it right there in their face. That is the lady who had a big old modeling career. That is the lady who was a sexy siren in leather who got onto like sexy TV reality shows all about sexy things. Uh, that's not such a sexy picture. I'm going to talk about her and other people who started to show the wear and tear of what our punishments in America really look like. You're going to see all the before and afters in a minute. And then here's the other thing. The judges always tell you, trust the evidence. They tell the jurors, trust the evidence. I have a slight issue. Um, I have always felt that fingerprints and DNA and GPS and all that stuff is really, really good. You know, sometimes only one of those things is like slam dunk. But now we have AI. And I have got to put a case forward to you tonight that could shake your cage a little, like rattle it up. Uh, you can fake someone's guilt. You can fake a murder. You can frame someone for murder, and it's getting real easy. So I want to talk about all of that tonight, though. First, though, um, she was the last adult with the gun, quote, unquote. 
but she's the first parent of a school shooter ever to stand trial in this country for the carnage inflicted by her kid. And tonight she faces the real possibility of 15 years in a Michigan prison, all because in the words of the jury forewoman, quote, she was the last adult with the gun. That's Jennifer Crumbly right there in the white at the front of the courtroom, convicted today, four counts of involuntary manslaughter, one count each for the Michigan high school students who were shot dead by her son, Ethan, when he was just 15. Quite a minor. I want you to watch Jennifer's face as the jury tells her four times in a row that she is also guilty in the deaths of those kids. On count one of involuntary manslaughter, as to Madison Baldwin, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. On count two of involuntary manslaughter in regards to Tate Muir, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. On count three, as to involuntary manslaughter regarding Hannah, Hannah St. Juliana, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. And in count four of involuntary manslaughter against Justin Schilling, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. She's got a little time to think that over before her sentencing. For now, lock her up, chain her up, walk her out of the courtroom. She's coming back uh, April 9th. And like I said, 15 years for each of those deaths, not consecutively. It would be concurrent. So each of them at the same time. But 15 years is a reality. Um, before that, uh, her husband is also going to face the same charges with a different jury. I wonder how that's going that's to unravel. Will James Crumbly be guilty as well? Will his lawyers claim, well, mom's already guilty, so there's nothing more to see here. Are moms automatically more guilty if a kid does something bad? Do the dads get a pass? Is this dad going to walk? Or will he get the same fate? Testifying in her own defense, Jennifer said that she took Ethan to a shooting range just a couple days before the rampage, but it was James, the husband, the dad, who was responsible for storing the pistol, a pistol that Ethan had just been given as a gift from both of his parents, James apparently doing the purchasing. News Nation's national correspondent, Alex Capriello, joins me live now from the courthouse in Pontiac, Michigan. Okay, so look, we saw the clip. It is never the same on TV as it is when you're right there in the courtroom. So Alex, take me into that courtroom for the moment that she heard uh, that word guilty four times. Well, let me begin even before that to the moment where she walked into the courtroom. I'll tell you, it was so much tension in there. It was deathly quiet while we waited for her to actually come out of that door. And it's always important for me to pay attention to sort of the facial and body language of a person like this, a defendant. And I could tell that she looked really worried in that moment. She knew that whatever was about to happen to her was about to happen to her real soon. And so I didn't see very much confidence in her face. Uh, the bailiffs took off her handcuffs. They sat her down and she quietly whispered to her defense attorney as they waited for the jury to come into the room. To your question now that the verdict is actually being read, you could just see the entire defense table deflate, both attorney and defendant. You saw Shannon Smith, the defense lawyer, actually push back from her seat and just kind of shake her head in disbelief. Jennifer Crumbly, as you've pointed out in the video that we now have that close-up, you could really see her hang her head in dismay, keeping her eyes closed as each time, each count came back 
guilty. And certainly it did not look as if she was very pleased at all when they put the cuffs right back on her, took her back into custody, where she will now wait until April 9th when the sentencing hearing actually happens. Not pleased. I get it. Um, I wonder if she sort of came in there thinking, not a chance are they going to find me guilty. It's Ethan who did this. It wasn't me. I just wonder what was going through her. I mean, she seems so stoic and kind of like, you know, she she just looks like she's made of of concrete. But the forewoman said a few things outside of the courthouse. I was shocked to hear the forewoman actually talk. But what was the tipping point here? What did the jury actually say behind closed doors? Well, it was really interesting hearing her thoughts because we get insight into what it was actually like behind closed doors. Every one of us always wonders what those conversations are actually like, and she actually filled in a lot of the blanks. Uh, specifically, one thing that I found interesting was that entering into that jury deliberation session, there were people on both sides, guilty and not guilty, who were trying to get their points across. It wasn't unanimous, and that's the reason why we saw it. it took about 11 hours over two days. Uh, and also peeling back the curtain into what the actual deciding point was for them to reach those guilty verdicts. Here's that conversation. Okay, so tell us how it was deliberating. It was very difficult. It wasn't an easy decision. Um, lives hung in the balance, and we, we took that very seriously. And tell us, um, was it, oh, did you have to convince each other? Is there anything, anything like that where it was going maybe? Um, I will say um, both sides were well represented. Oh, okay. Tell me your name. I, nope. You don't want to tell your name? Nope. That's fine. That's you can fine. confirm you were the forewoman, though? I was the forewoman. Okay. Is there... Was there something specific that really stuck to that you guys were debating over for that many hours? Um, the thing that really hammered it home is that she was the last adult with the gun. And we really did have a feeling that there was at least a few holdouts in that jury deliberation session because they came back to the court twice yesterday to ask questions about what exactly they should be analyzing, what evidence they can use to infer a level of guilt or not guilt, uh, which spoke to us that perhaps it was they were leaning towards the defense, that maybe there was people in there that were not feeling as if they could convict Jennifer Crumbly. But like I mentioned, 11 hours later today, uh, shortly after noon, we got that verdict guilty for all four counts of involuntary manslaughter. She was the last adult with the gun. I wonder if James Crumbly's uh, jury is going to feel the same way or if James Crumbly's jury is going to say he was the last adult with the lock. Uh, it's fascinating. Thank you, Alex, for, for sitting through all of that and then bringing us, you know, the, the color and the feel of that courtroom. It's so important. Thank you. Thanks, Ashley. So before the Oxford High School shooting and before Virginia Tech and before Sandy Hook and Parkland and so many others, There was Columbine, and this April marks 25 years since Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold opened fire at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado. 13 people were killed that day. 12 of them were students. One of them was a teacher. And it really, for the most of us, it seemed like it was the first modern-day mass school shooting of the era, right? Kind of marked the first part of this awful era we're in. Those parents would never see a prosecution of Klebold and Harris because they shot themselves before they could get arrested. But did the grieving Columbine parents ever think for a second that a school shooter's parents would one day be held accountable for the same kind of hell and torture they went through a quarter of a century ago? 15-year-old Daniel Mauser was killed at Columbine. 
And earlier today, I spoke with his father, Tom, and I asked him if he wished that he had the same kind of justice that the Michigan parents got today. Here is our interview. Tom, what did you make of today's verdict? I was pleased. I I think it's long overdue that we saw parents of a school shooter in a case like this, that, that was such an extreme case, have to pay a price for it. Was there anything in particular that that Jennifer Crumbly may have said while she was on the stand in her own defense um, that that particularly made you feel this way? You know, part of it was when when I heard her her comment that she had wished that the school had shown more concern about her son. I, I thought it was so ironic. You know, why didn't she and her husband show the same concern about their son? Uh, the, the signs to me were, were, were there, uh, the signs of behavior. Um, clearly, it was a troubled kid. And, and then when she said that it was her husband's responsibility to secure the gun. I'm sorry. It, it's the responsibility of both parents to, to secure a gun. You, you don't provide a gun uh, to a, a 15-year-old kid uh, who is troubled. Which, of course, leads to my next question, and that is about the next trial, because Ethan's father is going to face the same process. What do you expect and what do you hope that the verdict might be in his case? Oh, I, I hope the verdict is, is the same. I, you know, being parents, it, it's, a, it's a partnership, uh, and, and you are equally responsible for the raising of your child. And I, I think he should face the same consequences. Uh, it, it seems to me that their household was a train wreck. And, is there and a gradation is, of, of holding, sorry to interrupt, is, is there a gradation of, um, of holding parents accountable in school shootings? Meaning, should every parent of a school shooter face these same charges and have to answer to them? No, I, I, I don't think so. I think it does depend on a bit on the circumstances and really have to look at what was going on in that household and how much the parents knew. Uh, in, in the case of you know the, the school shooting where my son was killed, I don't think that they should have faced the same kind of consequences in, as in this case, uh, by no means. But you do have to look at what, what is going on and not just simply say, well, it was the child's choice, it was their act, and parents aren't responsible. We have to have parents who show some responsibility. And that we, we touched just, you know, um, the surface of, of the Columbine uh, tragedy and the loss of your son, Daniel. Do, were there thoughts at the time back then when you went through this that you wanted to hold the Klebold parents and the Harris parents accountable for what their sons did? Yeah, I, I, I certainly went through that process. I, uh, I asked questions of myself. What was what was going on in, in those in, in those homes, uh, and especially as more evidence came out, you know the videotapes and the fact that they they did have their guns at the at, in their home for a while uh, at one point, and that a gun shop had actually called their uh, the home of one of the the boys um, asking about the delivery of ammunition, and he just said, "Well, this is the wrong number." It never occurred to him that maybe there was something going on. Um, but I have to say, it didn't really quite come to the level of thinking that uh, that they were somehow directly responsible. I did certainly have feelings that they should have been better involved in their kids' lives, 
because because their 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 sons did get in trouble with the law. And I think there should have been more. Does it make a difference that uh, their sons took their own lives? If, if, if those two boys had survived their own massacre, do you feel as though the parents perhaps should have um, paid some kind of a, a price in terms of responsibility for that disaster and that tragedy? Yeah, I, I think in, in one way, maybe it shouldn't be different, but I, I think probably it is. Uh, I, I, think, I think we as humans do ha- have a certain feeling uh, for you know, when when parents lose a child in, in, in a case like that, they've they paid a terrible price as it is. Yeah, that, that probably is is true. Um, you know, and, and 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 for me, part of the the resolution was actually sitting down and, and meeting with uh, the parents of the killers eventually. Which I which I learned that you did do. We're looking at a picture there of, of your son, Daniel. So sweet. Um, I, I read somewhere that you. You still wear Daniel's shoes, especially when you do public appearances um, on this particular topic. Can I just ask if you're wearing those shoes for this interview? Yes, I am. Uh, I feel that it kind of it kind of gives me strength. That, that really, Daniel provided a lot of um, inspiration to me to speak out because we were both very introverted, and um, even though he was so shy and introverted. He chose on his own to join the debate team at Columbine, where he had to get in front of people and speak. And, and that has really helped me uh, in my quest for stronger gun laws to get in front of people and speak, despite the difficulty of doing that. I, uh, I, I just feel some empowerment from those shoes. And I, I only wear them at those That's times. A- so they, will last, they will last a lifetime. Such a sweet, sweet face. I'm, I'm glad that we're able to help honor him. And I'm glad you were able to share that anecdote about what he did for your life as well. Tom Mauser, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate this. You're welcome. Thank you. I just wanted to bring something up. It just occurred to me as I was listening to that interview again. And that was that Daniel Mauser, we were looking at the picture and he's such a cute 15 year old kid, right? There he is. Adorable. (laughs) He's studying and he's you know, typical high school kid. Daniel Mauser would be 40. Daniel Mauser would be 40 if he hadn't been murdered at Columbine. Coming up next, uh, when justice takes its toll, hard evidence that hard time has a way of changing a man or a woman. Case in point, does this convicted murderer look familiar to you? She's just a couple of weeks into her sentence, but what a difference a set of iron bars can make. She was a one-time super glamorous model and a reality show sex kitten, but boy, did she do a bad thing, and boy, does it show. We'll show you her more glamorous side next. So I'm going to ask you to put down that glass of milk you got there for a hot minute because I do not want you to spit spray your TV set when you see this next picture. I've been talking about this woman for months. I didn't even recognize her when I saw this, but here she is rocking some bulky prison coveralls. Megawatt smile is gone. The smile we're used to seeing. The flawless makeup, the perfect hair, vaporized under lockup. No parties in the background of this mugshot, just a cold cement wall at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla. 
It's about 40 miles north of Fresno. So if you haven't yet guessed who this is, uh, we'll give you a pretty little hint. That's her. That's Tatiana Remley in a very jarring before and after. I'm going to give you a second just to go back and forth. And you can, I know you don't believe me that it's the same, but it is the same person. Just go back and forth. You'll, you'll see it. You'll see it eventually. It's going to take a while, though. Uh, that lady pleaded guilty six weeks ago to offering a hitman $2 million to kill her estranged husband, Mark. But the hitman was an undercover detective, and she was convicted of solicitation to commit murder, and she was sentenced to three years and eight months in prison. And to put it mildly, Tatiana's glamorous life and her glamorous look has hit the skids. Before the arrest, she and Mark were living off of his multi-million dollar inheritance. Um, they were investing in vanity business projects by day and swinging by night. They even showed up in a documentary series on Showtime called Naked Sanctum. But what a difference a hitman can make. Um, the prison photo was taken just January 17th, and that is only 20 days into the sentence. It is going to be a long three years. The new reality is really written all over her face. And she is not the only one who's undergone a prison metamorphosis. Lori Vallow started showing the strain of jail and prison pretty quickly. We could almost track the journey through her triple murder trial with the photos that were taken every time she moved to a brand new jail. Yeesh. Caitlin Armstrong, that yoga teacher who was convicted of murdering her cyclist love rival last November. Here she is, smiling in better days on the left, and then not so smiley on the right after, you know, arrest, murder, conviction. And she only got a couple of months under her belt in a 90-year sentence. So watch this space for the next couple of pictures that we are sure to get. Jody Arias went from blonde and glam to brown and mousy. She's doing life with no parole for murdering her ex-boyfriend, Travis Alexander. That's a big change. But it's not all about the makeup and the hair, folks, because prison takes its toll on men, too. This is what nearly 20 years has done to Dennis Rader in prison. That's the BTK killer. And his daughter told me right here on this program that her father is now in a wheelchair and, quote, rotting to his core, end quote. Scott Peterson looks quite a bit different from when he first went to prison two decades ago. He is now 51. On the left there, he was 32 when he was convicted of killing his wife, Lacey. And then we have the picture of the Delphi murder suspect, Richard Allen. And you can see his devolution while a guest of the Indiana corrections system. His attorneys say that his frail appearance is due to prison conditions being, quote, akin to those of a prisoner of war. I want to get to Caitlin Becker here. She's one of News Nation's newest national correspondents. Look, jail and, and prison, prison is not supposed to be pleasant. It is supposed to be punitive. But it's always fascinating to actually see it. Because normally we kind of wash our hands of these people after they're let out of court post-verdict of guilt. And Ashley, it's fascinating to see how quickly these people and these inmates can change from who they were on the outside. Like you said, 
Prison is a punishment. You're not supposed to have access to life's luxuries, especially for some of these women like Tatiana and Lori Vallow, who used their physical appearance as kind of a tool in their life for this, that, and the other thing. It certainly illuminates for me, if I ever thought about committing a felony, I don't want to know what I look like after a little while on the inside. But you can see how their appearances change so drastically based on the conditions inside. So no, you shouldn't have access to your Botox and your filler and your 10-step skincare routine, but basic humane care is still something that's needed. But not everybody suffers like this physically in prison. Some people have a glow up. So speaking of that, that's exactly what I thought when I saw the most recent mugshot that was taken in prison of Susan Smith decades after she rolled her two little boys into a lake and watched the car go under as they were strapped into their car seats. I thought things would be a lot worse, but there it is. There's the before and after. I think she kind of looks better. She does. It's pretty remarkable. And even recently, Gypsy Rose Blanchard, who got out of prison after a significant amount of time over the death of her mother, she seemed to look 10 times better than she did prior to going in, which I think speaks to the treatment that she had under the thumb of her mother while she was younger. She was out of prison just a week or two and was on a red carpet. So it's not like this for everyone, but I wonder and I have to think that the outward appearance of some of these inmates have to do with how they're inwardly managing their life behind bars. Yeah, I, I don't mean this uh, when I say this. Uh, I certainly don't mean it with Gypsy Rose in mind, but I do mean it for people like Lori Vallow. And that is that, you know, prison is meant for, for deterrence and it's meant for protection and it's meant for retribution. I mean, that's what punishment is, right? Absolutely. And the retribution is kind of sweet sometimes to be able to, to witness it. Uh, Caitlin Becker, always good to see you. Thanks Thank so much. Pleasure. All right, still to come, accusations and allegations and bombshell revelations. We knew that there was going to be a lot of finger pointing at a big press conference today, but we had no idea how bad the fallout would be around that man accused of raping over 50 unconscious women on videotape who then busted out of a prison van and became a fugitive. One by one, these women filed in and took aim at a city manager and a whole city police force, accusing them of taking bribes and blaming victims. Ladies and gentlemen, I need you to buckle up because there is a very bumpy ride straight ahead. We all learned the name Sean Williams when he somehow broke out of a Tennessee jail van last fall, despite the fact there were two guards along for the ride. He stayed on the run for more than a month before being caught and cuffed. And since then, we have learned a metric ton about what allegedly went down in the months and years leading up to that escape. But in Knoxville, Tennessee today, wow, just wow. A group of his alleged sexual assault victims took turns after coming in one by one, describing what they believe he did to them and how police, they say, ignored it, ignored them, ignored the whole thing. The women are suing the Johnson City Police Department, several of its officers and detectives, and the city itself for allegedly enabling Sean Williams' sex trafficking between 2018 and 2021. They claim that the police took in 250 reports of rape against him. 
one guy, Sean Williams. And then the women say that they did nothing. And they say they did nothing because they claim Williams was paying them off. Paying the police to the tune of $2,000 a week. Protection money for himself. They say he wasn't arrested, though, until the other police departments found video and photos alleging um, that William was raping more than 50 unconscious women on video. It's kind of hard to refute that, right? Until today, the women had remained anonymous, but they have had it. They're all listed as Jane Doe's in the lawsuit that they launched, but now they've decided to go public. After the Johnson City manager, Kathy Ball, held her own press conference pointing out that some of the victims took illegal drugs while at Williams' apartment. In their view, that city manager effectively blamed them, blamed the victims for being raped while they were unconscious. Take a look. I read Ms. Ball's words that the victims were quote-unquote, comparatively at fault for their quote-unquote mistaken judgment. I was outraged and I was distraught. I am one of the 52 women whom Sean Williams sexually assaulted while taking sexually explicit photographs of me. My name also appears on the raped list. That was hard stuff to listen to. Kathy Ball, the Johnson City manager, released this statement, which reads in part, protecting victims and the community is the top priority of the Johnson City Police Department. We encourage anyone who has suffered a sexual assault to come forward to a law enforcement agency or to our Family Justice Center End quote. This is vital for victims to get the help they need and the justice they deserve there. End quote. The alleged rapist, Sean Williams, is currently facing some pretty other serious issues. Separate state and federal charges of child rape and child porn. But he is not facing any charges relating to the 50-plus video rapes in Johnson City. His first trial in federal court is now set for May 21st. I am now joined by Michaela Evans on September 19th, 2020. She was inside Sean Williams' apartment after a night of drinking when Williams claims that she somehow just fell out of a five-story window nearly to her death. The investigation that followed led to many of the charges and allegations against Williams. Michaela, it's good to have you back on the program. Thank you for, for doing this. I wanted to get your reaction to that press conference today and those women who so bravely and you know so forcefully said, this cannot stand. We were victims of this man. And whatever happened beforehand, whatever partying anyone does, doesn't mean rape is fair. I totally agree with that. I mean, no matter what you're doing or who you're doing it with, rape is not right no matter what. Michaela, do you feel as though you and these other women have been ignored by the police? And I know that you're not one of the uh, rape victims in this you know, this cachet of 52 plus you know, rapes on video, but you... You nearly died. You broke over 100 bones in your body falling out that window, uh, whether it was fell or pushed. Um, do you feel as though you were properly investigated? Do you think these women have the same story that you do? Um, definitely. I mean, some 
very a little bit different but i mean obviously everybody's not going to be exactly the same but yeah i don't think they investigated my case at all and since some of the detectives and officers names have been released in that last lawsuit several of their names are on several of my papers um including um their statements that they took from them the questions they asked that's pretty much who was on those papers, uh, my toxicology report, my rape kit, all this. Do you believe there's something to the claim that these women are making in this um, explosive press conference that there were officials with Johnson City who were literally on the take, receiving money every week to stay quiet about complaints regarding Sean Williams? Yeah, I'm one of those being my lead detective. Tell me more about your experience and whether you've heard any whisper rumors where you might come in with evidence that that would help that case. I mean, 250 rape cases filed against him is is astounding. I don't know that I've ever heard of anyone with that many rape cases, rape accusations. What what else do you know and what evidence might you have to support what they're saying about police being on the take? I think my stuff wasn't done correctly. Like my mother requested me to be tested for date rape drugs because she was alerted to be done that to be done because he was infamous for using date rape drugs and uh, raping women around Johnson City. But nobody would ever press charges to prove it. I was never tested for any kind of date rape drugs, and half of my um, rape kit was not. It was tested, but it was not performed. It says no examination performed. And three, it was three different things, which is one, to test for foreign DNA, which obviously would be his. And they swabbed my hands, but they did not test my hands to see if I, like, pushed somebody off of me or anything like that. And I was told that even if so, if they had or whatever, that um, they could argue that... um, of course, his DNA was on me because once I was on the ground, he eventually come down and put his hands on me. And there is a crime scene photo with my blood covering his entire hands. Michaela Evans, I'm, I'm so thankful that you, you know, have come forward to, to talk. Um, I'm thankful for the women coming forward as well. And I think, you know, we together will watch to see what happens to this man. He is in a world of trouble right now. Um, so I will call you back and we'll see what happens in terms of justice uh, for all of you with regard to Sean Williams. Thank you, Michaela. Still to come, it is often the central plot in a movie. An innocent guy is framed for murder. The struggle is real, but the justice prevails because the bad guy makes just too many mistakes. Today, however, there is a brand new villain in town, and it is AI. Artificial intelligence makes it possible to frame someone from the comfort of your own home. You want to see what I mean and how easy it really is? You will. Next. GPS data that shows the phone or the car at the scene? Maybe like the suspect's DNA under the victim's fingernails? Or how about this? Video of the suspect actually committing the crime, right? Any combination of those, even just one of those, 
will often spell a conviction. But what if artificial intelligence could make all of those certainties a whole lot less certain? The truth is, artificial intelligence has made all of these crime-fighting tools laughably easy to fake. Take a look. Trust the evidence, not your instincts. Judges have been saying that to juries for as long as there have been trials. But now, even the most rock-solid, time-tested pieces of evidence are being challenged by defense attorneys and jurors because of how easily they can be faked with the right technology. Technology that was dreamed of, written about, and debated decades ago and has finally arrived. Artificial intelligence. Here's how AI can make us question almost everything or anything in court or anywhere else. Example one, audio and video. For prosecutors, this has been the holy grail. Jurors can see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears the defendant doing exactly what he or she is accused of doing. Case closed, but no more. With ChatGPT and other AI apps, anybody with a smartphone or a laptop can slap together a video or a sound file of anybody doing anything. What if I were to tell you that I'm not even a human being? Would you believe me? I wish I could keep telling you that our mission in life is connecting people, but it isn't. We just want to predict your future behaviors. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time, even if they would never say those things. For that reason, and for the first time, defense attorneys are now demanding that the state produce other evidence to back up their alleged recordings. And that brings us to example two, GPS. Eyes in the skies, actually satellites in geosynchronous orbit that track the movement of cars and phones and even people. It's a hugely important tool for law enforcement, but it too can now be faked. Several inexpensive apps exist that can override a phone's legitimate location data. One of them called, and I'm not kidding here, fake GPS location, has been downloaded more than 10 million times. Rideshare drivers have created fake trips with it to pad their incomes. And yes, there is software that can spot these fabrications, but it's always playing catch up with the faker apps. Meantime, prosecutors are ever more reliant on physical evidence to make their cases. Example three, fingerprints and footprints. No one on earth has your fingerprints but you which is why they've become the gold standard of prosecution evidence since the days of Jack the Ripper. But guess what? 3D printers can replicate fingerprints. Software is on the market now that can scan prints and print them out as 3D impressions. Meaning, a person could hypothetically leave someone else's fingerprints on a murder weapon or on a body. And not just fingerprints. 3D printers can also make copies of footwear right down to the tread patterns worn into the soles of the shoes you want to copy. Which brings us to example four, DNA. Researchers from Estonia say they've developed an AI system 
capable of synthesizing DNA, the very stuff that makes us unique in who we are. They claim their artificial genomes are indistinguishable from actual human DNA. And they say they can replicate anyone's genetic material if they have a sample to go on. And that means someone could basically plant some of your replicated DNA at a murder scene, even if you've never been anywhere near it. So what will all of this mean for murder trials a decade from now? If any evidence, video, fingerprints, or our very genes can be reasonably doubted, what's left? Coming up, Nicholas Rossi may be a lot of things. International fugitive, rape suspect, inveterate liar, but you cannot call him a quitter. Do you remember this guy? Accused of all those horrible things, but swears that they've got the wrong guy, that he's British and speaks and breathes through an oxygen mask. At his latest bizarre court appearance, he has once again insisted he is Arthur Knight. The sir is optional. I'm uh, taking you to Utah for this one next. You remember Nicholas Rossi, guy who was born in Rhode Island and accused of raping two women back in uh, 2008 in Utah? Uh, Rossi fled to Ireland and then to England where he faked his own death by posting an obit in a local paper. And along the way, he called himself Arthur Brown. And then he changed it to Arthur Knight. And then he changed it to Arthur Knight Brown. His tattoos, however, told a different story. And his fingerprints, however, sealed the deal. It, it was Nicholas Rossi. It was him. But it didn't stop him from this little performance in a Utah courtroom a little while back. My name is Arthur Knight Brown. My date of birth is 22nd of... The 11th, 1986. Is it July 11th, 1987? No, lady, it's 22nd of November, 1986. Yeah. His birthday was as fake as his accent, and uh, he was back in court today, remotely, and we could not wait to see which guy showed up. Once again, it was Arthur Knight, again denying any knowledge of this fella, Nicholas Rossi. Yeah, I'm not Nicholas it was really hard to make out, but he said, I'm not Nicholas Rossi, for the record, before acknowledging uh, that he received the charging documents. And I, for one, cannot make this up. That's it. Almost next. Stay tuned. Hey everybody, I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Tuesday. We're live. We have breaking news, so let's get after it. A jury in Michigan just found Jennifer Crumbly guilty of manslaughter. Guilty for a school shooting committed by her mentally ill teen son. Now, this is the first time a parent has been convicted in this country for a child's 